I grew up watching the Waltons. Uh, that was a um, steady diet for me. Uh, I think we only had one channel when I was growing up. It was Channel 5, NBC. I lived in, uh, up until a few years ago, my parents lived in the same place. We lived in a, a, a swamp, Bob Swamp. And it sounds like it's really uh, primitive, but it's not so primitive. We were just outside of town enough to where we only got one TV or one channel on our TV. And the Waltons was regular fare for me. A Little House on the Prairie was another one. I watched a lot of Little House on the Prairie. I enjoyed all the Hicks's pictures that they've provided on Facebook as they've visited all those, um, all those places recently. Uh, I grew up on the Bunkers, uh, Archie Bunker, Edith, I think that was her name, Judith, was it Edith, um, all in the family. Some of y'all can remember that show. The Jeffersons, I watched The Jeffersons. Um, the Brady Bunch. I mean, a lot of us can identify with the Brady Bunch. A lot of y'all have no idea what I've been talking about so far, and that just kind of makes me laugh. Um, family Ties with the Keatons. Remember the Keatons? Uh, the Cosby Show is another one that uh, maybe that might be a little bit more contemporary. Uh, when I was growing up, I think the family was represented as pretty much what, what they would call and what we call now as a nuclear family, um, with in, in many ways the dad leading. Okay, in this nuclear family, in a lot of these stories, the dad is leading. Now, he may not be leading well. Archie Bunker is a great example of that. Um, not leading well, but leading. Um, the wife is looking to her husband for leadership in these, in these shows that I grew up on. The kids, I think, are looking to the parents for leadership. Um, I think the kids and the parents both were working together for the good life. Uh, a big part of the storyline over the course of every episode was some sort of conflict. You know, the Brady Bunch is a great example. Some sort of conflict, but the goal was resolution by the end of the show. And if it wasn't, it was to be continued, and you couldn't wait for the next episode because it's going to be resolved. Um, and family members, I think, could go to bed like the Waltons. Good night, Ma. Good night, Pa. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Jim Bob. Some of y'all remember that ending to every episode. I think uh, over the years since I grew up on these types of shows, I think um, the view of the family has become more cynical. If you just use television as a snapshot there, you think about shows like Roseanne, also a picture of a family environment, but one that was pretty cynical. Uh, the Simpsons, you know, many of you or most of you likely are familiar with The Simpsons. In this case, The Simpsons were a nuclear family uh, with zero family values, we might say. Uh, Homer is presented in, these, uh, in this show as a royal doofus. He's not the leader of the family. He's a guy that really is the obstacle to a positive future for the family. And his wife Marge is really the only sensible one. Bart and his sister Lisa stick together, but really only for survival under the inept leadership of Homer. Okay? I think the picture of the family moved more cynical um, I don't watch really any of these family shows now. Uh, I don't know that there's a lot of those family shows that are out there now. I know Modern Family is one that's out there. Some of you may watch Modern Family. I've never seen an episode, but I, um, as I did a little survey online, I was trying to figure out what are people watching now when it comes to family? Well, how is television presenting the family? So I, I looked up a little uh, Wikipedia description of Modern Family. Now, this is abridged because it's a little bit... Um, longer than this on Wikipedia, but this will kind of give you a glimpse if you're not familiar with the show. Modern Family revolves around three different types of family. 
families, a nuclear family, uh, a step family, and a same-sex family living in the Los Angeles area who are interrelated through Jay Pritchett and his children, Claire and Mitchell. Jay is remarried to a much younger woman, Gloria, with whom he has an infant son and a son from Gloria's previous marriage. Jay's daughter, Claire, was a homemaker but has returned to the business world. Jay's lawyer's son, Mitchell, and his husband, Cameron Tucker, have an adopted daughter. This family represents, and I'm taking this verbatim from Wikipedia, this last um, sentence. This family represents a modern-day family, and episodes are comically based on situations which many families encounter in real life. Man, I... I'm not sure that the Waltons, our little house on the prairie, would make it today. I mean, I'm not sure that maybe the Hickses and a few of the rest of us would watch those shows, picking on the Hickses. Are they, are they even back yet? I love the picking on people that aren't here because then they listen to it online. They realize they can't defend themselves. <laughs> I'm not sure that these shows would make it today. Uh, things have really, really changed. It, it seems in some ways that the ideal has become boring and tired. Um, I found a review of Modern Family that described the Modern Family as refreshing and honest. Refreshing and honest. Uh, I'm not the greatest at deciphering our times. I don't think that's my job. I think my primary job is deciphering this thing. Um, But I will offer this one thought. How our culture and our times define family and the home and what we expect of a home, what should go on there, what constitutes a home, is a moving target. The shows that I described to you changed and transformed over the course of my 50 years. Things are a moving target. But I think the good news for us as the people of God is this. We have something static to hold on to. And not only is it static, but it's good. We have something good and static to hold on to. It's where we're going to be spending our next seven to eight weeks in this passage that I'll share with you now, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 5 in Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. What I've just read to you is what, call, what is called in Ephesians the household code. This is not the only place that the household codes exist. I'll share with you a few other passages here in a moment. But I want to just take a few minutes just to consider what we've just read. There are three different relationships that are dealt with in this passage. This is where we're going to spend the next seven to eight weeks. Three different relationships. The first one is between wives and husbands and husbands and wives in verses 22 through 33. If you'd like to kind of have an outline of this passage, something that you might study as families, you may jot these little passages down. Chapter 5, verse 22 through 33 deals with wives and husbands and the marriage relationship. Then beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, parents and children are dealt with. And then the third relationship that's considered, which would have been a home relationship. It's not so much a home relationship now. I don't know anybody who has slaves now, but would have been a home relationship at this time in their context was the relationship between masters and slaves in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6. These are all relationships that would have been common to the ancient home. And this is what constitutes in Ephesians what's called the household code. In this passage, if you've been paying attention, and maybe if you've read ahead, like I encourage you to do through an email this week, you, you likely see order. Okay, you see some order and some structure there. You see some things uh, going on there. You might even uh, that, that involve a leadership and following role, where people are leading and people are following. The husband is leading, the wife follows, the mom and dad are leading as the children follow, the master leads as the servants follow. You see those sorts of relationships. If you're paying attention too, you will also see what I'm going to call, especially next week when we talk about wives submitting to their husbands, a functional hierarchy. If you're paying attention there, you see what I'm calling and you'll see, understand that better next week, a functional hierarchy. Also, in this passage, if you're paying attention, you, you probably recognize there are things discussed like love, sacrifice. I hope, too, that you've noticed that in these three different relationships, if you didn't see it this morning, you will see it over the coming weeks, and you might see it even later in this message, that in these three different relationships, as they're discussed, that there's a common thread and a common motive for those relationships playing out the way they're presented there. It's a beautiful passage, and it's something static for us to hold on to. It's presented in some other books of our Bible or versions of it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. 
is another household code. And it's likely the source document for this passage here in Ephesians. Most people believe that that is older um, passage that is a source document for where we are in Ephesians. That's Colossians 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. There also wives and husbands are discussed, parents and children and slaves and masters. Another household code, if you'd like to study another one, is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 7. There, Peter discusses a relationship between slaves and masters and also wives and husbands. Another little version of the household code is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This one is only discussing the relationship between servants and masters. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And the last household code that I was able to find, at least, is in, t- in the book of Titus, beginning in chapter 2, going verses 1 through 10, where Titus there gets a lesson from Paul about the relationship between older men and women and younger men and women and the older to the younger and between slaves and masters. Those are your four or excuse me, if you count Ephesians, five household codes in our two New Testaments. But our Ephesians passage is where we're going to be spending our time for these next seven to eight weeks. Today I've been uh, thinking through what I wanted to do today. I planned on launching right off into the wives submit to their husbands today. Uh, In fact, I'm eager to do that, not because I think anybody needs to tune up, but because I think I I, I enjoy unpacking a passage in a very linear, contained way. This morning is going to be a little bit different. I think this morning I might be more teacher than preacher. But I think there's still some preaching that's going to be done. But I think I, I want to encourage you in these next few minutes to be in the learning mode. Okay, What I want to do this morning is I want this morning to be an investment in the next seven or eight Sundays. What I'm hoping to do in these few minutes that we have together is to equip you with something that's going to help you read and study and even hear differently over the next seven to eight weeks. I want to spend time this morning helping you get to know the ancient Roman family. I'm going to dedicate the whole morning to that. The ancient Roman family and how they would have heard and received this household code. We're going to look at two things this morning, just two. So if you want to kind of know where we are in the map, uh, draw a little mental map of where we are in the morning. First, I'm going to deal with the length and the quality of their lives. The length and the quality of their lives. And secondly, I'm going to deal with their view of family and home. Their view of family and home. I think it's going to change the way we read this passage. Let's see. We'll deal first with the length of their lives and the quality of the lives. Ancient Roman families, first, this is the first point of the morning, lived short, graphic lives. Short, graphic lives. Women were married between the ages of 12 and 17. Okay, that may not be strange to you if you think, you know, Mary was likely married at the age of 14. It's an ancient tradition or ancient practice that Young women married very young, between the ages of 12 and 17. Most were around 14 years old. Okay. Men were married between the ages of 18 and 30. So typically men married a younger woman. 
Marriage wasn't a courtship between two high school sweethearts. Okay, they didn't have high school. They may have had sweethearts, but I don't think so. I think it's just an un, unfathomable idea. The whole notion of courting and things like that were not part of their culture. Marriage was a contract between families. Okay, that might sound interesting to you. Let me, help, let me help you visualize this. What that would mean is likely this, that most husbands and wives would not have even spoken to one another before their wedding day. Let that hit you for a minute. Most husbands and wives would not have even spoken to one another before their wedding day. They may have never even seen one another before their wedding day. You might imagine how Paul's call to the wives in this passage to submit to husbands as to the Lord and for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church might be far-fetched just in light of that. Just in the light of the fact that they likely hadn't even met before the wedding day. Just imagine what the wife might say. I don't even know this man, Paul. (laughs) I didn't meet him before six months ago. I didn't even know him. And you want me to love him as, and to submit to him as the church submits to Christ? He's twice my age. I'm 14, he's 28. You want me to follow this guy and submit to him? You might imagine how he might respond to Paul's encouragement. You want me to love this woman sacrificially? I don't even really know her love language, Paul. I thought how funny it would be to sort of import some of the books that that are on the shelves now. Some great marriage books out there. Gary Smalley, Gary Chapman. I think that's a Gary Chapman book. The five, or not the five, the the love languages or whatever. Gary Smalley or Paul Tripp. I could imagine this old fella when he's an old, I'll explain why he's old here in a minute, would be aching for a book on marriage to help him understand his young wife. Maybe a book that helps him realize that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Mortality rates in this context 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire for children were about 50% before the age of six. Half of children before the age of six perished. The average lifespan for adults was 20 to 30 years. Let that hit you for a minute. 20 to 30 years. Women usually died younger than men due to iron deficiency and anemia. Apparently very common in this context. Menstruation and pregnancy made women much more susceptible to death during or shortly after childbirth than obviously than, women's, than, than ladies are now. If someone made it to the age of 40 and actually went beyond the age of 40, they were considered ancient. Okay? I'd be long dead. <laughs> it's crazy. Men who managed to live into their 30s or 40s likely would have had lost a wife already by this point and would often remarry and start on sort of a second family. That's who's hearing this letter from Paul about the household code. I think in some ways when you consider the length of their lives and the loss that they must have experienced, if they've got five or six living kids, how many did they lose If they've got a wife or a a husband that's 20, 25, 30, how much loss and pain and grief and suffering have they experienced? I think it explains why, in their context, they weren't godless. 
See, there's something in us, maybe it's chronological snobbery, maybe whatever it is, I don't know what it is, ignorance, that looks back 2,000 years ago and thinks these people were godless. These guys, the pagan home, the pagan uh, Roman home was very much looking for the gods. Very much so, trying to make sense of all this loss and this pain and this suffering and these short, painful, graphic lives. They were not godless. They were looking for the gods to try and make sense of the meaning and the loss. Consider this. The wives to whom Paul speaks in this passage would be around 15 years old. Let's just grab a median age there. Nursing their first or second child, maybe their first or second living child at that moment. Married to a man 10 to 30 years older than themselves. One they hadn't met until their wedding day. That's where the household code lands. This wife may have buried a child or two by this point. If she makes it to her mid-20s, she'll likely have emphysema and chronic fatigue after delivering and raising her fifth or sixth child, sixth child all the while being severely anemic. So when Paul speaks to husbands here, just consider this. And when he's calling them to love their wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he's calling a man to love a young woman who daily deals with grief and loss and sickness. I mean, daily. I know some of y'all deal with those things from time to time, but imagine if you'd lost half of your children. Imagine if most of your friends were gone because they died in childbirth. Imagine the loss and grief that you would deal with on a daily basis. Men, imagine shepherding that woman. Imagine caring for her. He is calling them, these men, to love a woman, a woman too who is likely laid up in bed a week out of the month from anemia. Man, it adds new meaning to loving sacrificially. And it adds new meaning, as Peter called it, to caring for a weaker vessel. Man, these facts, as I studied them over the course of the week, they really, really floored me. It made me think about in this ancient marriage, in this ancient context where this code was presented was a graphic context, a painful, poignant context where short lives were filled with loss suffering, and pain. They didn't have good medicine to lean on. They didn't have affordable care. They didn't have any version of anything, of any of the above. They didn't have technology to lean into, to sort of medicate with. They didn't have anything to kind of numb them to the pain of it. They didn't have their health. (laughs) They didn't have that to lean into. They didn't even have many years to hope for. Their lives were short and graphic. It must have made Paul's words to them earlier in the book of Ephesians to make the most of their time for the days are evil especially potent. How might these facts, these little factoids here, impact how you read this book and how you handle the household code? I'll offer a couple of thoughts. First, on the one hand, I think we have it much easier than they do. I hope most of y'all made a beeline to that. That's kind of a lob. 
But I think we have it much easier in this respect. I think we have the luxury of knowing one another before we tie the knot. And we have the luxury of spending some time together working through that process, getting to know one another, and to really understand one another before we deal with the graphic lessons that they had to deal with every single day. Man, in a lot of ways, I think we have it a lot easier. We're called to the same standard as they were, but we have more time to sort it all out. Man, we have a time really what we might, we, we might call peace. I mean, literally, with our health, with our context, where we have years to work through these things. And if we're wise, I think we'll use that time. I think we have it a good bit easier in some ways. On the other hand, I was thinking about this, I think we have it a lot harder. <laughs> and here's why I think we have it a lot harder. You know, you've obviously heard the phrase, the light at the end of the tunnel, okay? You know, imagine a woman that's living with a guy that's just a real loser, Okay? The light at the end of the tunnel is a long way away because people are going to live 70 or 80 years these days. And if somebody's saying, man, you need to go distance with them, don't bail on them, that, that, that tunnel is really, really long. <laughs> For these guys, man, their tunnel's really short. <laughs> if they're married to a loser and Paul's saying, man, go the distance with them, submit to them, they're like, okay, well, you've got, i got about 10 more years to hang in there. Man, I, I can appreciate they had a shorter tunnel, and I think in some ways it is easier to live attentive for shorter seasons. It is. But maybe we can consider this. We shouldn't let a longer tunnel or an average lifespan that's much longer than their context make us lazy in today. Okay, and make us numb to what we ought to be walking in today. We shouldn't let good medicine or technology or any other preoccupation keep us from walking in what God calls us to walk in now in this household code. I think that if we're wise, we'll join this ancient people in how they must have heard these words. I'm going to say that again because I really want you to get that. If we're wise, I think we will join this ancient people in how they must have heard these words and together ask God to help us live graphically in a world that really isn't preoccupied looking for the gods at all. I think if we're wise, we'll be looking for God in our home. They live short, graphic, painful lives. And it must have made for a very important message in the household code. The second thing I wanted to deal with this morning is that ancient Romans and their how they valued the family and home will add a lot to how you read this passage. See, ancient Romans highly valued the family and the home. Okay, I'm not just talking Christian homes. And I'm not even just talking Jewish homes. I'm talking ancient Roman pagan homes highly valued the family and the home. Aristotle predated Paul by about 300 years. And here's what Aristotle said about the family. These guys in the Roman context, they stood on the Greek philosopher's shoulders. Okay? In fact, the whole Roman Empire, in many ways, stood on Greek shoulders. But listen to what Aristotle says. He counted the family as the smallest unit of the state. Okay, I want you to get this. This is really interesting. He and other Greek philosophers viewed stable and healthy homes as foundational to the stability and health of the state. Let me share a quote with you from Aristotle. Now that it is clear what we are the excuse me, now that it is clear 
What are the component parts of the state we have, first of all, to discuss household management? Listen to what he brings up here. For every state is composed of households. The investigation of everything should begin with the smallest parts. And the primary and smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. Listen to what he says. We ought, therefore, to examine the proper constitution and character of each of these three relationships. Here's what just floored me this week as I'm studying this context. That ancient Greeks and Romans, especially, we're talking about the Roman context, had a high view of the home and family. A very high view of the home and family. So high, in fact, that any upsetting of the traditional hierarchical order, which they held to a hierarchy in the home as well, could be considered a potential threat to the state. Let me put it to you in terms you might, you might really connect to. How the family was doing in the ancient Roman Empire was a matter of national security. That's staggering. Let that hit you for a moment. How the family was doing in the ancient Roman Empire for them, and we're not talking Christians. We're talking everybody was a matter of national security. Just let that hit you diagnostically for a minute. Let that sink in and just kind of think about our context. Did you hear a single candidate in this previous presidential election process talk anything about the stability of the home or a hierarchy within the home? Would that have been the end of their little election process? I think so. I can't imagine that anybody would have survived that concept and that notion that how the family is doing and how the hierarchy and the different roles within the home are playing out is going to have a lot to do with the health of the state. That would have been the end of their um, campaign, I think. It's ironic that 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, a healthy state they viewed was the product of healthy homes. Now, the thought has completely reversed, hasn't it? Expecting that healthy homes are going to be a product of a really healthy government. How's that working out? Let's just make the government bigger and provide more things that they can do for the family. And instead of making healthy homes, it makes a bunch of needy and dependent and lazy homes. Man, 2,000 years ago, even pagans had a view of a healthy state is made up of healthy homes. How the family was doing was a matter of national security in the ancient Roman Empire. Now, connected to this, and this is where I'm going with this. You might be wondering, it's kind of nifty so far. What does it have to do with household code? In ancient Roman Empire, the home, to include all the family members and all the servants, adopted the religion of the head of the household. Okay, the father and husband, whatever religion he was, whatever gods he found or God he found is typically, traditionally, what the rest of the family adopted. And in their context, in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, they frowned on any religions that damaged the integrity of the home by targeting and converting wives and servants. There were a couple in particular that did that. You might think that all these pagan gods were all welcomed by all the people 2,000 years ago. Two of them in particular, Isis and Dionysius, targeted wives and servants and encouraged them to bail on the family environment 
and to bail on their husbands. They were frowned upon within the Roman Empire, Dionysius and Isis. Now, here's what's interesting. Christianity in the Roman Empire was potentially misunderstood to do the same. If you've read your New Testaments, you know there are the mention of converted wives and converted slaves. If you've read Philemon, you know there's a guy named Onesimus. If you've read other books, you might have recognized some names like Lydia, a woman who sold purple. Uh, Other names that, that, that come up. Timothy's mom, Lois and Eunice, they are believing wives, married to Jews. Man, realize that in this context, there was potential for Christianity to be viewed in the Roman Empire as subversive to the health of the home. Now, what does that have to do with the household code? And why was it even necessary, if you think about this, why is it even necessary for Paul to distribute a household code in the book of Ephesians or in the book of Colossians if every home already had that structure? Consider this. Theologians believe that the household codes of Ephesians, Colossians, Peter, that these other household codes I mentioned earlier are in response to this cultural concern I just shared with you. They believe that in many ways that these things are responding, these these codes are responding to this concern as wives and servants are being converted to Christianity by showing that Christian converts within the home will still submit to their husbands. Children will still submit to their parents, even if they convert to Christianity. Slaves, Onesimus, will still submit to Philemon. That's the the thought behind the household code. That makes a lot of sense. You read books like 1 Peter when you start to think that way and you start to look for passages. Listen to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's the notion that Peter is speaking, and this is right before he talks about his household code. That the motive for the household code is so this lost world, this lost pagan world who highly views the home and the family and the structure at home won't dismiss Christianity because thinking it's subversive. Man, I want that to hit you. (laughs) I want you to be floored by what I'm about to share with you. 2,000 years ago, the family unit and the home and the roles in the home of husband leading his wife, of wife submitting to her husband of husband and wife leading the children and children actually submitting to their parents, of master leading the servant and servant following the master, that that was presented 2,000 years ago as an apologetic for Christianity. It's presented as saying, hey, lost pagan world, don't worry, Christianity is not going to mean the disassembly of your home. That was the message 2,000 years ago. It's shocking to think about Then it was an apologetic, a defense for Christianity, that conversion to Christianity wouldn't mean the disintegration of the home. And now 2,000 years later, the very same household code that hasn't moved, remember that's static, with a functional hierarchy, with roles, with people submitting to one another, is no longer a defense for the faith, but something instead that we want to apologize for. 2,000 years ago, it's saying, hey, Christianity is not going to be the disassembly of your home. And now 2,000 years later, we're not wanting non-Christians to, not, to even read it. Or we're wanting to soften the notion of submission. 
because we're ashamed of that code. Really? Man, the view of the home and the family has so deteriorated. The view of the home and family has so decayed, or at least changed, that the Christian household code has gone from assuring the lost world that Christianity isn't subversive to now offending a lost world because we hold to a standard and a design at all. Man, if that doesn't blow you away, it might not blow you away. I may have completely lost you a little while ago. I don't know. Your facial expressions aren't giving me me nothing right now. Please, I'm dying. Because this, I mean, all week long, I mean, it's all I could think about, all I could talk about. It, It blows my mind. That the, the view of the family has so deteriorated. 2,000 years ago, it's saying, ah, it's okay. Christianity is not going to mean the disintegration of your home. And now it's something we want to be embarrassed and ashamed of. Because our culture and our world now says, shouldn't be hierarchy within the home. There shouldn't be roles within the home. There shouldn't be this notion of submission and leadership within the home. Man. A lot has changed in 2,000 years. But let me tell you, people of God, the Christian standard, the standard for the Christian home has not moved. And it must not. I don't know if there's ever a more important time for it to not move. We'll be considering these next few weeks uh, this design. We're going to be exposing this ancient design. And we're going to be holding fast to it as a people of God. Gripping it. We're going to be gripping this design as it's grounded and it's rooted in worship. That's the rationale and that's the motive. Our goal, I think, my goal, unlike the idea of the modern family uh, of being refreshing and honest, um, I would rather be um, faithful and true. I'd rather want us to represent God's design and be a salty preservative in a decaying world.